0: to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Mr. Gabe Escobedo, who is uh, one of the coolest guys in town and one of the coolest guys involved in volunteer civic work, uh, doing a number of things in the community. And this is our second time around, Gabe, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it because first time we talked on the podcast, you were, were talking general Sort of just you, your background, your story, the things you're involved with, and you've been doing so much in the last year. So this is going to be a really good conversation about all the really important work you're doing in the community. And I'm going to ask you a couple tough questions too. So just want to give you a heads up, but how are you doing today, Gabe?
1: I'm doing well, and I'm looking forward to this tough question. Um, (laughs) And thanks for the generous uh, introduction. I'm excited to be here and talk about some really important things that are going on in the community.
0: Yeah, well, whenever I see you talking at the Planning Commission or the Community Formation Commission or any of the things you're involved with, I always try to pay attention, listen very closely, because I know you're coming at it from a place of authenticity. And I want to just sort of talk to you about that. Let's start with the Community Formation Commission, because there was a big meeting recently with the City Council where the CFC was presenting its findings, its its recommendations after more than a year of studying what a civilian review oversight board would look like and what that frame would be. And you're the leader of that group. You obviously work with a whole bunch of other people who are important in that effort, but you're sort of the leader, the figurehead, and you sort of talk to the council about this. And so I want to sort of start right there. I, I kind of felt like it was a almost a masterful presentation, Gabe. Okay? It was really... Uh, uh, disarming, de-escalating, calm, and and really good conversation to have on an issue that, as you know, has been so volatile. So can you talk a little bit about what is going on as it relates to where things stand right now with a civilian oversight board? And how did we get here?
1: Yeah, it's a, um, when I was on the podcast last time, we had just gotten appointed to the Community Formation Commission It was right before we were gonna get to work. And I think um, at that time, the amount of work and the amount of time that we were gonna put into it, I don't think we could have predicted. In the the last 13 months, we have put in countless hours meeting multiple times a month. Um, We contracted with a fantastic uh, organization that does this for jurisdictions throughout the United States, and then, just working with that large of a commission it was um and figuring it out over zoom as you know trying to have these really in-depth and thoughtful conversations on zoom isn't always conducive but we figured it out and all of that work um I came to a head on friday and i could not uh we could not have done it without uh other commissioners like Louisa Wood, Rachel Johnson, Jordan Killebrew, Ana Sepeda and others um, who really, uh, we sat down for a long time to talk about what the presentation would look like, what we would include. It's a lot of information. It's a 20 page recommendation document. To distill that and not put everyone to sleep, (laughs) um, we we spent a lot of time doing that. And I think we were really successful. We got, got everything in, the timeline, what sort of trainings, what sort of conversations we had, um, the recommendation itself. And then as you know, budget's always gonna be an issue, especially right now. And so proposing some alternatives for city council, um, that calming effect of being able to disarm the conversation or at least lower the temperature on a what could be a controversial um, topic honestly comes a lot down to the relationships that we built leading up to that. So we had been working with chief Malekian, Lieutenant Sean Hill. Um, We had met with the POA multiple times. We had uh, met with commanders, lieutenants, sergeants, uh, line officers, and all of that proactive relationship building, I think built a lot of goodwill. It, it allowed us to have some really important conversations without um, without people feeling offended and being able, we provided a space for people to provide their input um, and not demonize them. And I think that's really important uh, for a lot of topics that are going on right now. We can talk about some of those later on. Uh, but one of the biggest things that came out of the last year's work is civilian oversight is going to be a part of our public safety approach. And it doesn't have to be combative it can be very collaborative and it's it's not only beneficial for the community um the larger community but it's also beneficial for officers as well there are a lot of benefits there's a lot of work that lieutenant sean hill and chief malekian want to do right now in terms of looking at long-term trends um taking a hard look at policies and practices uh having community feedback and community conversations that because they're understaffed, it's, they don't have the capacity to focus on that or things come up. In addition, having a third party or someone outside of the Santa Barbara Police Department to highlight the things that we're doing really well, but also find areas where we can improve, um, goes a long way in building those community relationships, which we highlighted a lot in our presentation, and I think came out in some of the back and forth with city council too.
0: Yeah, it was really, really fun to sort of, not fun, but it was really um, interesting and kind of just uh, inspiring to listen to everyone in that room. Most of the people on the commission were pleased with where things were at. I mean, I think everyone was pleased to some degree. The council also, um, the people involved, Chief Malekian and uh, Uh Sean Hill, officer, uh, Lieutenant Sean Hill, also very much in support of some kind of plan. There's obviously people who are not, right? And so we mm-hmm. heard those people talk at the meeting. There's those critics who are just reflexively going to say, this is Santa Barbara. We don't have a problem. We need more funding for cops. I don't think they fully understand what is happening here. But I think that number was thrown out, something like eight complaints against police officers last mm-hmm. year or something. So so can you, Gabe, talk about... just sort of big picture like why do we need civilian oversight if there's only eight complaints in the city of Santa Barbara can you explain that
1: yeah it's it's a good question and it's a fair question um and and I want to highlight we do not have a police department like um we see in some of these uh national tragedies but what what I would say is civilian oversight is an opportunity to create a bridge from the larger community that portions of our community that do not currently have positive relationships with the Santa Barbara Police Department, they also um, don't have, uh, we're not receiving that feedback from that portion, and typically that portion of our community has the most needs, or they're they're living the most precarious type of lives, or they're facing challenges that um, are more well-off portions of our community are not really facing and, and don't have their finger on that pole, this provides a forum in order to have those conversations. In addition, uh, there are the processes for um, internal investigations or the um, complaint process The day-to-day operations of the Santa Barbara Police Department is pretty opaque for the most part. You can go on their website. It's not um, the most friendly interface. Uh, It's not um, the regular day-to-day person is not receiving that information. And so part of civilian oversight is also going out to the community, proactively building relationships, and educating and engaging the community so that they know about these processes they know what's going on day to day they know about uh the work that the the really important work that the police department's doing at the same time when it when it goes back to the complaints themselves uh, there also needs to be a sense from the community that the process from when a complaint is is Received all the way to completion when a decision is made, whether it's sustained or unsubstantiated, that it was done in a just way. And I'm not inferring that it's not currently, it's just so opaque that many community members don't know. And they don't. And so when you don't know, you uh, kind of default to uh, skepticism. And it's just bringing light to this process that we currently have. I have every faith in Lieutenant Hill. since he's in, in charge of that internal investigation process. But it's allowing more people to, to get to see what that process is, how it was carried out, and have a third party made up of uh, community members, but also a um, oversight professional to confirm that and to be that voice to say it was done in a correct manner. Um, and where there are areas where it could be a little bit better? That's the insight that that could provide. Um, one of the most insightful parts of our outreach process, So we kind of uh, did a number of things, but starting in October and November, we started going out to community organizations, introducing ourselves, talking about the process, um, talking about what the Community formation Commission is because it doesn't sound, <laughs> it's not so intuitive. it doesn't really directly relate to civilian oversight. Mm-hmm. So talking about what it is, and we were talking to an organization that um, supports sexual assault uh, survivors, and they have a good relationship with the police department. They um, work with them often. And we were having one of these um, introduction meetings. We opened it up for questions. And one of the most insightful things was, and I loved how they framed it, they framed it in a way. A police officer, and we all, we all need to recognize this, a police officer's job is really difficult. We ask them to go out to so many different types of calls, and they're, they're available, just like the fire department, 24 hours a day, when other services are not. Along with having that stressful job, encountering really stressful situations, comes trauma. And it comes out in different ways. It could be um, inpatient, it could be someone being rude. It could be a scoff, an eye roll, which seems pretty benign. It's not going to have this huge effect if I did it in my job or if you did it in your job. It's not going to affect um, someone It might irritate them, but but not too much more. In that role, when you have someone who um, already has really uh, large barriers in reporting some of um, the experiences that they have getting into the process, the legal process. I think it's about 30% of, um, of, uh, sexual assault survivors. They actually report and go through with the process and those types of interactions. When you actually do get involved in the process and you encounter a police officer and they're taking your report and they're impatient and they're, um, it's just not a good experience and it's not providing the right type of uh, atmosphere uh, conducive for that, you might be dissuading someone from getting involved in the process. And that's really important. And, um, particularly for that one person, but, um, a larger issue. And so if you think about how many situations we have like that, uh, or potential situations like that, just people that are, um, dealing with issues and already have barriers getting involved, those types of things shut them out. And we want something, a community voice, something that's proactive that can find those situations because I can every single police officer that I have um, talked to throughout this process wants community input. They want to do the best job possible. Um, they want to see where uh, where they can do better and that might mean, more training on how to deal with those situations, on how to, um, bring people into these legal processes and how to provide an environment for them. So there are a lot of different roles that civilian oversight can play, not just focusing on when police officers are, um, doing things wrong, but how can they do a little bit better, but also highlighting what they do well. I think, um, civilian oversight kind of gets distilled to this really simple thing and I think that's where it started but it has a lot it's multidimensional, and I think it could serve really well in the city of Santa Barbara
0: yeah a couple things there one two to your 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 most recent point we don't want to wait for some horrible thing to happen to have some yeah. sort of oversight board. that's that's not intuitive so you have to be proactive with these things and so if you lay the groundwork ahead of time, the training, uh, uh-huh. the uh, ability to understand what a small little gesture by a cop might mean to somebody who's not used to interfacing with the system, if there's understanding of those things, then you can uh, prevent them, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. wait until the, the, everything falls apart to fix it. So that's that's the you know easy answer. And then the other thing is more complicated. It's more complex, but... It goes to one of the things I want to ask you about next, which is those, those little microaggressions and those little implicit biases, you know, I, I really have come to the point where I just think some people just will never understand. They will never mm-hmm. understand as much as you tell them to understand, as much as we yell at them to understand if you're in a position of white privilege, or let's say majority privilege, if you're in a Mm -hmm. position of power, if you're in a place where everyone in power is like you, um, you probably have a really hard time understanding a microaggression of how a look, a nonverbal behavior, a gesture, even your words can affect you. I think the problem Mm. is those people who have that privilege think, the only definition of violence is physical and anything else people just are being weak right and that's a Mm -hmm. really bad uh perspective to have and i think that's the jump they can't make because they may not receive that same level of course they may have other things going on that they they have situations where they don't feel treated well but you know as you and i know right like like Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, Gabe, I walk into a store, right? And people are saying, come on, Josh, give me a break. No, I'm telling you the truth. To this day, I walk into a store. (sighs) Can I help you? Like, it's instant. It's target. It's everywhere. I'm lingering in an aisle. Can I help you with something, (laughs) you know? And, you know, when I'm wearing my teaching clothes or my, you know, I have a collared shirt on and slacks it happens less. Okay. But if I'm wearing my casual t-shirt, it almost always happens. People look at you in a certain way with a sense of what are you doing as opposed to being invisible. And I think so much of us, you could speak for yourself, God, we would love to, to go through a day being invisible. My goodness. Well, how amazing would that be just to walk around and have no one pay attention to you <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Instead, it's, I got to explain to you why I'm here. Okay. It's even walking in my neighborhood, you know? So I don't think people understand that they take a lot of that for granted. And I want to talk, I want to go to your point on some of the things you said at the meeting was you talked this amazing story, how Lieutenant Hill, the first time you met with him showed up in plain clothes, no weapon, just to have a conversation with you. And this was so significant to you because you have mentioned you know, that you grew up in uh, some rough situations. Uh, you didn't have great interactions with law enforcement, maybe you and your family members. Uh, you'd mentioned that your father ha- has, has done time, you know, in- incarcerated. And so you have that, that um, what is that? Just that, that sense of uneasiness in those situations mm-hmm. and something as easy as Lieutenant Hill knowing that i'm not going to show up and intimidate this guy right trying to do everything you can not to to put you on an equal playing field can you talk about again for this audience what that meant for lieutenant hill to show up on an equal level with
1: you yeah um that was probably the most unexpected uh question that alejandro gutierrez asked, Mm -hmm. and i um I question whether or not to share it, to be honest, um, because I do I do reflect on that moment quite a bit. It, it is going into this, um, it was very important for me to be a part of the community formation commission, and then to be chosen as chair um, was an honor. But I had a lot of anxiety about what that would mean in terms of. Um, interacting with officers either one-on-one or in groups and what would it be like i knew that there was some apprehension um about civilian oversight and what that would mean and is that going to come out in hostility and and similar to you i mean um and i i spoke with uh, lieutenant hill about this at some point is when I see an officer or if I see um, just walking down the street, if I'm walking down State Street and I see an officer, even if I'm doing nothing, I tense up and I get, um, I don't know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anxiety. It's, it comes with past experiences I've had in, growing up. And um, so going into that first meeting, Lieutenant Hill had reached out probably immediately after I was chosen as chair. Asked if uh, we could get coffee, and I just I had no idea what what it was going to be like, and I was thinking about all the ways that this could play out. Is he? Uh, I imagined he was going to wear his uniform, he was going to have his gun, and it was going to be this back and forth where it could be tense. Or um, he showed up in a shirt and tie, um, and even that was. That I physically felt had a calming force for me. And uh, then you talk to Lieutenant, Lieutenant Hill and he is thoughtful. He is um, very conscientious of things like that. He purposely dressed down. He purposely used um, particular language or approached the conversation in a certain way uh I, i'll never forget our first conversation i was really i i kind of said something to the sense of you're gonna have to earn my trust because i i i was honest with him i don't it makes me feel uncomfortable I, you're gonna have to earn my trust and he was totally okay with that And he was okay with us having really difficult conversations um that first conversation we talked about policing in general and public safety and uh, we would push and pull. And the fact that he was comfortable with that, the fact that he was so thoughtful, it sincerely gave me a lot of confidence, made me feel a lot better for future interactions. Um, because this person who kind of approached the situation like that, understanding the power imbalance that comes with having a badge and a uniform and a gun is saying, uh, vouching for other officers and saying, this is a good person for you to talk to. This is a good person for you to talk to. You should really meet with the chief. Gave, gave me that confidence to do exactly that and to go in with a little bit less anxiety. It, I, even to this day, it, it doesn't go away, but it gets a lot better when you build those relationships and you can make, make these... Um, you can really make them people in your mind, right? So it's not um, this officer, just in kind of this ambiguous sense, it's Sean Hill, it's Barney Malekian, it's um, Casey Corbett, It's it's the fact that you get to know these people and it was in that moment like, that i realized that is the important piece to civilian oversight and that's a huge opportunity is that you could do that for a lot more people i was privileged in the sense that i was a part of this process and i got that opportunity there are plenty of and there there was the privilege in when i saw something wrong or when i saw um officers pull someone over and they had this extended interaction that I had an avenue to ask about it and to provide feedback and, and say like, this is what I saw. Um, not many people have that privilege. And so civilian oversight offers that for people. And uh, I'm glad that she asked it and I'm, I'm glad I got to share that story because I think it made it real for people. At least that's um, the impression I got for from council members and other people that, that had watched.
0: As some of those moments, those questions are, 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 are setups, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. going in, like, people talks, ask me this so I can look good with this. Was Alejandra's question really just cold? You guys didn't talk about that ahead of time? She just asked No.
1: Me. Yeah, she just asked us. And, um, like, we, we were prepared. It's funny, leading into the presentation, we were prepared for a lot of questions. Um, some of them not asked. Uh, we had never really thought about that lens of questioning, so um, it definitely caught me off guard. And I, I think I even looked uh, to the other commissioners, like, "Can someone bail me out on this one?" And <laughs> no one. Well, does. It was funny
0: watching you because you, 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 you did. You were taken off your game just for a moment. You paused. You thought about it. I almost sensed a moment where you almost were going to get emotional um, at least mm-hmm. watching the video. And then you you kind of came out of that real quick, but it stopped you. And then you kind of just told the story, which is the best thing to do when you're flustered, rather yeah. than thinking of a story to tell, just tell the story, be truthful. Mm-hmm. And it kind of it turned out to be, look, we're still talking about that. It was this really, really cool moment uh, for you. Growing up, you mentioned your father was incarcerated, um, and I, you know, we're talking a little bit about Latino and culture and race here. You today, right? You, you come across as being very um, successful, you know, and mainstream, and I don't think a lot of people will look at you and think you had it tough, Gabe. You know, yeah. and, you know, and I get the same thing too. Uh, we're sort of like if we're successful in the dominant culture world. Uh-huh. We're like the good ones somehow, you know, we're different, like not understanding that there's really no difference between us and others that they may not put in that group other than a couple of mentors or, you know, yeah. a little couple breaks here and there, but we're still the same people on the inside with similar, different experiences, but similar things that bond us. What was Gabe like as a kid? You know, you mentioned that a few times about that tension there are people who will always be like, well, well you must've been inviting the attention then. Like it's your own fault. I say that sarcasm. I got that email. Like I got an email from somebody who said, tell them to stop breaking the law, right? In reaction to my community yeah. information commission story. And it's like, you don't understand that's the problem. They're not breaking the law yet. There's a lot of suspicion about whether they are breaking the law. And then if they do break a law, the sentences are often much harsher than other people who break the law. That's the issue. Anyway, what was Gabe like? What was your lifestyle as a kid? Like,
1: yeah, it was, um, a lot of moving around like a general area. We stayed in the same area, but moving from apartment to apartment, but it was, my mom was a single mom and, um, Fortunately, we had my older sister, who's about ten years older than me, who would play a big role as well, and uh, and we had um, other family that would that would help out. But for much of our day, we were unsupervised, and so we would um, go to school, we would come home, and then we would hang out with friends. And I was into skateboarding, I was into um, to soccer, but mostly, mostly skateboarding for quite a while. And so I would be all over town. I would be uh, riding around town and the number of times that I would just be at a um, hanging outside of a convenience store, cause I went and got some chips and you're just hanging out and an officer would stop and say, Hey, what are you doing? And I'm just eating chips now as a kid, I was probably a little bit, um, uh, I'm trying to think I might've been sarcastic. This is another word that I want to use, but I I don't want to curse on your, your podcast. (laughs) Um, but growing up, it was, um, even in classes, in classes, like I always felt, um, I felt like I was capable. I just didn't feel like I have the support if that makes sense um it makes perfect sense I think the tragedy
0: of of uh even among all of the awareness today um there's this look on Latino students I'll talk for myself and maybe you of oh low expectation you're probably not capable of this but we're going to be nice to you because we don't want to offend you, but there isn't a sense of that dude's brilliant. Right? It mm-hmm. Just That just doesn't happen, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, educa- that happens all the time with education. And that's why we have an achievement gap is stuff goes on at home, of course, and support system and families need to do what they need to do to put their children to be in a position to be successful. But when they're in that classroom, if the expectation of you is we're going to be nice to you, but we're not going to push you and challenge you and we're not going to expect the most from you that's a recipe for disaster you know so yep. you were saying even in education yeah and
1: it, it, it you highlighted it really well is, um, it's the low expectations I remember doing really well in, in some of my classes early on and seeing friends go into they called it a gate program it was for like gifted um kids to have after-school programs i was like man that's kind of cool i wish i could be a part of that same grade same everything just um never got that opportunity to do things like that and so then i i think through uh mostly elementary and middle school and right around when i got into middle school uh i would get into trouble i would get into fights at school um And it was probably around high school um, that I started maybe late middle school. I started playing um, soccer, like after school. So I I was good enough to get onto the traveling team, the club team. And almost every day after school, I would have practices. And if I didn't have practices, I would be um, at the soccer field. So in this weird way Um, When I think about my late elementary to early middle school years, when I didn't have anything to do after school, I would get into some trouble or I would um, have a lot of those interactions. It's when I got access to basically what was an after school program. And I got access to um, what would be in the future mentors. I mean, I told a story the last time I was on the podcast about how I applied to university at the very last minute that I possibly could. And I only did it because a soccer coach had paid for my application and had helped me fill them out because I didn't know. No one in my family had ever gone to college. And I think back at that because that was a pivotal point for me that has kind of led me to even be here in Santa Barbara, and it was a chance, it was, it was a luck thing, it was um, someone out of the kindness of their heart, uh, showing me the process, paying for my application, if we have a, a system, an incentive system, just in our society, where we rely on luck, and chance, and the, for someone to act out of the goodness of their heart, uh, we're setting a lot of people up to fail, and I think we need to start really rethinking how we we approach those sorts of things. Because a lot of folks, a lot of people that are struggling, are falling behind, and it's mostly because we haven't been proactive about having these conversations and building additional institutions that um, that serve one one I. Um, I would mention I'm kind of going into a completely different topic so I hope you don't mind. That's fine. But um I thought about this a lot so I know we're going to talk uh possibly about um assembly the assembly race that I jumped into. but One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is for young adults that are graduating high school and I've worked in higher education now for over 10 years so I I interact um, quite a bit with 18, 22-year-olds. But coming out of high school, really, if you want a, a good-paying job right out of high school, you have two options. You, have, you can be a police officer or you can join the military. And oftentimes, many of my friends um, either join the military or uh, some became police officers because going and getting a degree wasn't really an option for them, or it didn't fit their interest or skill set. And so, um, I've been thinking a lot about what we could do for for young um, young people if we offered things like, uh, and at SBCC, it's an amazing resource that we have. And you you know better than than most um, is really focused on serving the community, and we could we could leverage that into different things. We could have trades programs there that um, students at high schools can go to after school. They could be after school programs for people that are interested in cars. You could uh, learn how to uh, work on them at something like a an after school program. If someone is interested in so, uh, some of the biggest industries coming up in the coming decades, are going to be um, carpenters, home builders, electricians, plumbers, and those are good paying jobs. And I think um, something we we've, we've told people for a really long time is that the only way to be successful is to go and get your degree, and then go and get into tech or or what have you. Some of the most important, Important jobs that we have are um, exactly that: electricians, plumbers, tradespeople. Um, this is going to sound like pandering, but I, I hope that this actually happens at some point. Is we need more journalists, and we need it to be paid well because we've seen in the last—I don't know—you could you could say better than me—but our media has shifted and. Has itself become more polarized and it's become really confusing for a lot of people on what is real. And um now we have fake news and we have disinformation. And then you you look at the local level, and that's in my opinion, is where some of the most important work is being done um, in the day-to-day life. And you all are understaffed for the amount of meetings, the amount of things that are going on. It's impressive that all of that information here in in Santa Barbara gets out. And that's not the case in every um, jurisdiction. So like, I think there's a way for us to set up people so that um, we kind of reframe what success is. So I I get that a lot too. um, Oh, how how could you have had it so hard? Like you're successful now or, you made it out like and it's time to celebrate but then i think back and i'm like well i don't know my mom's pretty successful she worked two jobs she was able to navigate things she raised three kids uh i think that's pretty successful you think about um some other folks that we have that are that are doing really amazing things uh whether it's art whether it's um in their field like they're really successful. And I I totally take to heart your, your point about um, how the dominant culture really highlights one, one sense and one way to be successful, but there are many. um, And there's also many that we can highlight for our young people, because I think, um, I feel encouraged by the next generation and the generations after and just talking to high school kids or middle school kids. I think we need to start making decisions now that, that really set them up for success.
0: Yeah. A lot, a lot of really, really good points there, Gabe. I think just touch on one of them. This survival of the fittest mentality we have for if you're going to go to college is just so ridiculous because okay. you know we force kids in our society to go to school k through 12 soon tk through 12 and then it's like okay go uh if you can figure out financial aid great if you've got a scholarship grade if your parents saved for you great uh that that, that doesn't fit everyone every situation mm-hmm. and it's always like oh you're graduating high school where are you going to college okay and so there's that pressure and this idea that we raise our kids and then send them off far away tell them to go be successful is just one one path you know there's so many other paths and as as much people talk about what you said about like encouraging people to get involved in sort of the the trades and the cte type Mm -hmm. things it's like we really don't make that as like an equal playing field though we don't yeah. you know it's always like well you can always do this you know and so as but like, like we couldn't go through our lives without like having to interact with people who know how to actually do things fix things exactly you know like those people are super important you know and so you know some of those carpenters or mechanics or any number of those things that we rely on every day is super important and you know, like uh, we need to, to have options for people while they're in college. Like it's hard to, you, you know, there's talk, we spent four years in college, five years, six years, seven years. We know that Latinos take longer to uh, transfer, yeah. longer to graduate. It's because you got to work. Sometimes you're helping the family with money. It's, it's difficult. Um, it's, it's obviously there's a path, it is America. And where you can, where there's a will, there's a way that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And, like you can do anything in this country. Nobody's saying that. that we're, I'm not saying that some other countries are better, but still, really, 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 really hard. <laughs> it's not easy, and it's not as easy as you think. If you're so, if you're, if you graduated from college, if your parents graduated from college, if your their parents graduated, you've got that built-in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if your kid doesn't graduate from college, you're the failure. <laughs> These kids who are coming out like you and I, first generation, everything, miracles, honestly, that we were able to do that within the system. Miracles. And your journalism thing, there's not a, most reporters in this town are making less than $19 an hour. Uh, There's a few names in this town who make more than that, have been around Mm -hmm. a while, but you can go to In-N-Out and get a management job. You can go to Chick-fil-A and work and get paid. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's, it's a tragedy. That's another sort of tragedy, yet we're expected to keep working. That's why we have so much turnover in the community. People yeah. get hired, they work a year, year and a half, two years, they're like, wait a minute, I love my byline, but I can't pay the rent. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's another separate conversation <laughs> that we need to have about being able to, to treat people in our society financially the way they should be treated. I want to talk to you about uh, your assembly run Mm -hmm. and I'll just, I'll just say that I was disappointed. I mean, I'm a journalist, my opinion doesn't matter. I'll cover you the same, no matter what, I'll write about you the same, but I was sort of disappointed because I was there that day at the courthouse, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. you had family members, friends, and it was like, well, this guy's going to run somebody who's on the rise, young, and looks like the community. And uh, then you decided not to run because I guess Greg Hart got in the race. Um, And we know how that is. We know how that politics are. The Dem Party was going to go with Greg. Greg, long ago, was told, don't run. Step aside. Your time will come. by the party. And now is his time before it's too late. He has to jump now. And Greg's good. Greg's sharp. Greg's smart on the Democratic Party platform. He's a very strong liberal moderate. He, he knows how to do things. He's got a record, right? But mm-hmm. what does that mean? That means you're not running because you can't win. You don't think you can win. And what people don't understand is like, well, of course he could win. Just got to have a good message. Mm-hmm. No fundraising, like access to fundraising is a barrier to people being able to be successful in politics. Yeah. Greg's going to get all the money and people aren't going to give their money to somebody who they don't think is going to win. That's just how, why people give money. So Can you talk to me about like why you ran knowing Greg was probably going to get in and then why you got out?
1: Yeah. So I, I sincerely got in because I thought I could win and, um, I had made the decision back in, I believe it was October, November. I didn't tell many people because, um, which is a separate conversation, but, uh, when I was looking around at a lot of the work that I was doing in the community, working on housing, working on, um, uh, well, homelessness, working on climate policy, working on uh, working with young people at the university system, I started really seeing a lot of uh, trends in terms of all of those issues, they get. Solved, or they get addressed at the local level. But in order to do that, you need resources that only exist at the state and federal level. And I've done a lot of policy research, and it happens to be, for better or for worse, just kind of um, when there's an issue, I will see what's out there. What are the solutions? Do we have solutions? What's the research say? And The interesting part is we have solutions for all of those issues, but what we don't have is the political will and the resources to to do it. And and quite frankly, we have the resources as well. We just don't allocate them um, to support the solution. So when the redistricting was happening and it looked clear that they were going to draw out the current representatives and it was going to be an open seat my thought was you know this is an opportunity to talk about exactly that the solution that we have right now and um start having that conversation and i really believed and i still do because i had so many conversations during that brief stint of of running in the race that if we were able to make it um, past June, that we had a shot to win, and it's because when when talking to people, they want the things in their day-to-day lives to get better, and I think we have really lost focus on that in politics. Um, politics has become this game where it's like um, a football game. There's a winner and a loser, and you go out and you just kind of. Um, do whatever is necessary to win, and I get that mentality because um, I myself am a registered Democrat, and I want to see good Democrats in office. But really, I think we've lost focus just in general on the day-to-day person who's not engaged in politics, who's not um, doesn't have the time to attend a planning commission meeting at 1 p.m. on a Thursday that they are examining their lives and they're comparing it from now to 10 years ago 20 years ago there have been democratic presidents uh republican presidents democratic governors republican governors and the day-to-day just seems to get worse or it's the same it doesn't get better we have these problems that we talk about that Um, It doesn't ever feel like we're making progress towards them. And I sincerely believe that if we um, focus on those issues, on making a person's everyday life better, that with most people, you have common ground. You don't always agree on what the details are. But if you talk to people, most people want affordable housing. Um, How you do it is the question and the conversation that you can have. And I think being talking about those big ideas, those solutions, how realistic it is for to accomplish them, gets people really excited, and it gets people engaged. And we saw that as we were talking to people um, from unions, as we were talking about uh, to people who are um, who are healthcare workers or working as um, kind of homestay workers how excited they they got at the idea that we weren't talking about uh these abstract ideas that we were talking about ideas that affect them that they can see how that idea or that solution plays out in their actual lives or the lives of their children and um it was a really good experience, and I, I really sincerely believe, even till this day, if we could make it past June, we, we would be really competitive, even with someone as formidable as Greg Hart. Um, obviously, you outlined some of the barriers, and when a Republican jumped into the race, it became really clear that we weren't going to make it past June. And so with that, I... um decided to drop out and I decided to refocus uh, the work that or yeah refocus on my work that I'm doing in the community um finishing out the CFC process planning commission we have an important year coming up and then um getting even more involved in the community and and really connecting with some of the orgs that we have working doing really good work here on the east side and um in Santa Barbara in particular and Where I want to focus my energy moving forward is I learned a lot in that process. I learned a lot about why it's broken and the fact that we are not doing a good enough job of building a bench of young people um, who are going to take over these positions in the future. And so what I want to refocus my efforts on is Creating that lane for for folks, bringing new people into the conversation, but particularly focusing on um, Latinos who have the time to get involved in these processes to make it uh, a little bit more accessible to talk about the lessons that I learned um, and continue to do that to try and build out um, the infrastructure that, that can bring some new people into the fold and hopefully who knows one day make even the financial barriers um, far fewer for people. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: uh, so this is a hard question, okay? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to this is yes, I don't think there's any shame, okay? Yeah. Did you wanna be on the Community Formation Commission, wanna be on the Planning Commission, these very influential roles in our community, Mm Did you do that just as a springboard to raise your platform for an assembly run?
1: That's a good question. So it's, it's one that I have been asked before. And the honest answer, um, take it or leave it, but it's no. Uh, I, I, I think in the last podcast that we had together, the way I found the planning commission was I was getting involved in the housing discussion. Because housing was really important to me. I talked about how we moved a lot as um, kids. Um, Housing insecurity is not something that's abstract for me. It's a very real experience growing up. Even in college, there was a a small stint where I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I slept in my car. Um, And so when when I came here to Santa Barbara, it was the first time I didn't have to work multiple jobs to pay rent. So I decided to get involved in that particular conversation. Now, it fell into planning commission. Um, I never thought I would be at a planning commission meeting, period, but that's where the real housing discussion happened. So um, that's how I got involved with that. And then community formation commission, to be honest, is it was almost, a um, one, I see it as really important work, but it was almost therapeutic for me um because of of my my dad being incarcerated for most of my life and uh I never got to actually reconcile with him because he he passed away uh six years ago seven years ago and uh For me this was kind of my way of contributing to changing the way that we handle public safety and our criminal legal system and figuring out ways that we can someone like my my father for example i think could have really benefited from alternatives to incarceration and now i'm not saying the cfc work does is the end-all be-all, but it's a step in the right direction. So that, that is why I do this work. And and people may not believe it, but I think one of the reasons why I've been able to um, be somewhat successful in, in both of those arenas is because I've done my best to bring sincerity into the work that I'm doing. And I think what it does is it allows for Really tough conversations on people have really strong feelings about housing, people have really strong feelings about um, anything involved with the criminal legal system. But if you are willing to hear them out, you're not going to judge them, you're going to find the common ground and then have really tough conversations about where you disagree. Without really um, alienating them or or judging them. and it comes from a sincere place, I think you, you can have much more fruitful work. And so, those, those are the types of reasons and, and reasons um, I'm involved. I'm very happy with the work that I've been doing. There's a lot more to do, and there are some other areas that I, I want to get into um, in the community. But I think it was almost reversed rather than the work. Um, working on CSC or, or PC uh, planning commission to run for something. It was more of, um, I was running for state assembly to do more of that work and provide more resources for the work that um, we really need. And not just in Santa Barbara, but everywhere in California. And so that's the real reason that, that I got involved in PC and CSC. Yeah.
0: And it it shows a a lot of courage and bravery to step out after you stepped Mm -hmm. in, because just make that decision is I'm sure days and nights of anguish of deciding, should I do it or not? And waking up in the middle of the night and saying yes, and then saying no. And then finally saying, I'm just, Hey, I'm going to do it. And then you got to pull all that back and step out. You know, that takes a, a big person to be able to, do that because it would be much easier just to put your head down and say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. But you're, you're thinking of the party. You're thinking of Mm -hmm. Greg, you're thinking of the values that are shared between you and him. And uh, it's better to have him there than not there. Even if it means you aren't going to try to pursue it. So I think that that takes a lot of political courage of knowing when to, to not fight is really important as well. Um. Why don't you just run for, sit- question number two, Gabe, why don't you just run for, for city, ca- hard question, why don't you just run for city council? I mean, you would win. There's no doubt you would win. Um, I don't know what this I think I know what your district you're in, but I don't know for sure, I've been told. Why don't you just do that? I mean, you'd be like, <sighs> dream city council member.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I mean. To be honest, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think in terms of leading up to now, there hasn't been a, uh, an opportunity that I thought was the right one, um, to run for something like city council at the time. Currently, I, uh, live in the first district. So, um, council member, Alejandro Gutierrez, who I have an excellent relationship with and, um, I don't see myself running against her, uh, to be honest. So if an opportunity opened up, if um, the circumstances were right, I wouldn't rule it out. But I think uh, after asking me right now, it's hard for me to answer because um, finishing out that CFC process, I'm looking forward to having my job and just doing one or two things in the community. So I think right now I'm in a different mindset now removed from this in the future. I, I think it's definitely something that I would take seriously.
0: Yeah. And now we see district elections almost working against Latinos because you're not going to take on Alejandra. You're, you're friendly with her. And uh, if she decides to run again, then you're not going to challenge her, but Imagine a council with Gabe and Alejandra, we can't have that unless you move, you know, and so Mm -hmm. it's just weird when you think about those sort of things, it's about inclusion and diversity, what happens when you have two people from the same district who, who uh, like each other and want to run and aren't willing to, you know, fight over it, and nor should they, there should be seats Mm -hmm. at the table for everyone. Um, who's not had a seat in the past. Uh, we only got a couple minutes left here. I know there was the Planning Commission, city council meeting to talk about mm-hmm. a bunch of things. I think housing was the focus, but can you just can we just dive right in real quick and just what's going on in Santa Barbara? Where are we at? We just had this rent control discussion at city council and packed room, people talking about how horrible rent control is. People talking about how wonderful rent control is we are still seeing even with the the AUD program mm-hmm. these are market rate and even with the inclusionary these like $4,000 you know like for two bedrooms these things are going for how is Santa Barbara going to fix this housing issue or are we just not and that's just how it's
1: going to be yeah um i could spend probably a whole podcast talking about housing but yeah. um i we can we there there's more that we can do. we I think oversimplified our conversation on housing a little bit in talking about supply and demand and um, there's a lot of other things that are going on because once you have that housing built, then what happens to it so in the city of santa barbara, um, well, let me start here. the joint meeting yesterday, I think. We solidified some goals for our housing element because we're doing a housing element update. I will say in this next housing element that we are gonna finish in the next year, there's a huge opportunity to make some um, real policy that will get us to where we need to go. But with that being said, we have other issues as well as supply that we need to address. We have short-term vacation rentals that are taking up housing stock. um, in the city of Santa Barbara that we need to address that we're not currently addressing. We have, uh, this might not be able to be solved at the the city level, but definitely at the state level. We have corporations and investment groups that are buying up single family homes as investment vehicles. So they're driving up the cost and pushing what could be homeowners into the renter category and making the rental market even tighter. And then we have, like you pointed out, market rate um, developers who are building units, but they're very, very expensive. So you got to ask yourself who can afford those. Um, And kind of related to that is we have people who have second homes, who have um, they have condos, they have uh, rental properties that sit vacant for most of the year. That they use for the Santa Barbara Film Festival, or we can get away. Um, there are a lot of policy solutions that we can we can have to address all of those, and create a funding stream for the housing authority to do the work of building affordable housing. Because if we, in the near term, because we waited so long to develop housing, we can't generate it fast enough to drop rent to create enough supply to to push rents down. Yeah. We need the housing authority. We need people self-help housing. We need other nonprofit developers to develop the housing because that's the only way in the short term we're gonna get big number of units that are actually affordable to people who live and work here to meet the need. Um, so we need funding. There's uh, empty homes tax for vacant homes that we can open up. Uh, There's been discussion about raising the TOT tax, um, impact fees for hotels, because hotels are often going in places that um, could be housing, and creating a a process for the housing authority to get through the development process as fast as possible. Um, We also need to be lobbying our state and federal representatives to open up funding streams. Um, so when, uh, Greg Hart wins and, um, uh, we have Monique, we needed to start having conversations with them, um, to bring back something like the redevelopment agency, which was a revolving fund of money that could be, uh, used to develop housing, something like that for our housing authorities. Um, cause I think that's the only way, only way forward. And I, we're finally having those conversations uh, in the city of Santa Barbara. And I think this housing element is the vehicle to implement.
0: Great. Well, I promise you next time, Gabe, we'll, we'll start with housing. (laughs) Then we'll we'll get into me rambling later. No. um, (laughs) uh, Well, it's good to know that you are on the planning commission and you're somebody who's going to be leading these discussions because you, experienced it you care you're passionate you're smart you got all the things you need to have an honest conversation about this and you should for me Gabe just for me listen to Anna Marie Gott because she gets marginalized right for a variety of reasons that some of them are deserved but everything you just mentioned she's been talking about for years you know but it gets lost in all the other drama you know of uh, and I know she she calls in and stuff but it's great to to be able to talk to you about these housing issues about the community formation commission you know talk a little bit about uh your assembly run and race culture and uh you know i think you're doing a tremendous job and you're a role model and you're just out there trying to do what everybody wants to do just make their community better and improve and you're trying a lot of different things you're volunteering and you got your own personal life you know you got your full-time job that you have on top of that and so I think that, uh, regardless of whether you stayed in the assembly race or not, you are somebody who's being super impactful in this community. And I'm pretty confident, Gabe, that the time's going to come and it's just going to be perfect and you're going to know it for elected office and you're going to go there and everything will be, will be, uh, as it was meant to be for you. So, uh, thanks a lot for taking, taking time to explain these complicated issues and, uh, Thanks for taking time to be on the podcast again. Have a great day and weekend.
1: Yeah, thank you, Josh. And thanks for uh, providing this platform for folks to learn about some of the stuff going on in the community. You're doing uh, great work yourself, and um, I appreciate you a lot.
0: Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Gabe. Have a great day. Take care. I really appreciate it.
1: Take care.